0: You open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. I believe that's page 810. We're continuing our series in uh, the book of Romans. Uh, Good morning, uh, downtown, to our uh, brothers and sisters in Wilmington. And uh, we're picking up uh, roughly in the 10th chapter. uh, Well, We'll get to it. But before you do, I want to I start with this, this idea. Um, it'll help us a little bit later, I hope. It, this summer, my family and I were going to Colorado to vacation. And we're going to be doing all sorts of things, but part of the time we'll be down in Colorado Springs. We're going to visit my alma mater. And uh, then we're going to go up uh, Pikes Peak. And I've never done that before, so I'm excited. We're gonna take one of those things called, a, I think it's called a cog train. Yeah, cog train. Goes up the hill. When I was at school there, I had a buddy in my squadron who uh, got into mountain climbing. And he really, uh, really got into it. And he bought those spiked snow boots that they wear when they climb the snowy mountains. And his goal, he made it his goal one time to climb the north face of Pike's Peak with a friend of his. And I remember because it was like 7 o'clock the night before his leaving, and he's, we're hanging out in the hallway, and he's, uh, he's telling us he's going to do it, and he went to bed at like 7 o'clock because he got up at 4 a.m. to get to the base of the mountain in time to have time to ascend and get back down again, and... I remember the whole day went by and like 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night, he comes back into the squadron and he's like a shadow of his former self. Uh, but he did it. I was wondering, I had these ideas in my mind, I was wondering what it might be like if, think of this, if he told me he was gonna go climb the mountain the next day, so he gets up at 4 a.m., right? But I set my alarm clock for like 7.30 a.m., and I snooze it a couple, two, three times. And then I get up and I'm like, I think I'll go up the mountain today. But before I do, I go down to Cracker Barrel out of the South Gate and I get a big old breakfast. You know, like fill myself up with eggs and ham and biscuits. (laughs) Love their biscuits. And then I go to the, uh, to the, you know, the tourist place, the, the center and, I'd buy postcards, you know, preemptive postcards of things I'm about to experience, and, you know, go through the little walking displays on who Mr. Pike is, and I've never been there, so I don't know what's there, but I imagine I'd go do that, and then I'd get in the cog train, and clack, 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 up I go to the hill, I stop at the overlooks and take pictures, and... Uh, then about halfway up, you know, we have this big old lunch at some overlook restaurant. And I stuff myself, and I get to the top at about two thirty in the afternoon. And I'm enjoying the view. And I look behind me, and right over there, breaking the, cr- just breaking the crest of the peak, is my friend. He's finally reached the top. Now, what if I said to him when he got up, I looked at him all excited and went, "We made it!" What do you think he'd do? Like if I, you know, gave him one of those, like, accomplishment hugs and those big burly, like, we did it. Got my selfie stick. Took a picture of myself and him because we how I climbed, I, I got to the top of Pike's Peak. Well, how do you think he'd feel? I mean, what do you think his appearance in that picture would be like? I mean, he'd be, it'd be a fake. I'd be a total fake to him. I mean, he, can you imagine that? This feeling is a little bit how I think the Israelites must have felt when salvation by faith in Jesus Christ came in. Like for most of the Israelites, they were very, very proud of how hard they had labored and worked to attain the righteousness suitable to ascend into heaven. That was, their, that was the doctrine by which they were living. As we do enough good things, we're astute and attentive and observant enough of all the things, we laboriously climb the mountain of God. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in like some cog train. You know, just hop on to Jesus, and you it zips to the top. I think that is. I think that gets us into the place of how how they're feeling, how how what Paul's the problem, the challenge Paul has in working with them. You know, there's. You can tell, uh, it's hard to tell people when they're wrong. It's super hard to tell self-righteous people when they're wrong. It's next to impossible. Everybody here agrees except for the self-righteous people. They're like, no, it's not hard to tell me when I'm wrong. (laughs) If it ever happened, I'd have ears to hear it. You know, self-right, this is their self-righteous, self-right. People who are proud in their labor are the last people to hear that their labor is ineffectual. They're just, ah. And so for now, for chapters, I mean, Paul laid out the gospel in the beginning of Romans and a way of handling this, but now for several chapters he's, he's been working on this. In the ninth chapter, what we've worked through already, was kind of Paul's defense of God, saying, listen, because the Israelites are wondering, why have we fallen away? Why are we not getting the memo here on this? Why does this not excite us? Why does it feel like God's affections are shifting, are leaving us? Paul's saying, they're not leaving you. You're leaving God. And then their, their spirit was to blame. So chapter 9 is, God, is Paul defending God. Listen, God did not fail you. God was not being unfair. God is not to blame. It's not God's problem is the ninth chapter the 10th chapter is so what's the problem this is what Paul's going to be dealing with for the purpose sometimes uh when we talk about israelites uh, you know maybe it feels a little bit historically irrelevant for your ears i would i would offer this as a general equivalence the moralistic person in the crowd okay Put yourself in the role of the Israelites. If you're here this morning, or if there's someone you know or love or care about, and you're proud, you are in some way putting up your works, the things you've done, as a down payment for heaven. And that would sound like this. Um, I haven't done anything really that bad, okay? Or I do pretty good things, I'm a pretty good person, that sort of thing. If that is your doctrine of salvation, or your doctrine of peace about salvation, Okay, you fit in a category called the moralist, and Paul is dealing with this today. Okay, but I think when you read Israel or when you see the allusion to Israel, just uh, put an equal sign. It's it's kind of equivalent to an ideologically respectable moralistic person, somebody who thinks that how our performance is how we get there. And I'll say one last preparatory statement. We did this chapter in April. On April 19th, we, uh, we preached through this chapter. So I'm going to move fast today. If you feel like, wow, that's fast, uh, go back and listen to the 19th of April, and I think it might slow it down a little bit. Okay, let me pick up. Chapter 9, verse 30, this is when the argument starts to turn away from God and to the real problem. Verse 30, what shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. That is, it is written... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of, righteous, of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes okay why did the moralist fail it says because he pursued his own righteousness that's what it says at some point it says they didn't even pursue the righteousness of God they made their own righteousness and pursued that And the reason they do that, the reason maybe we're tempted at times to do that is because if the Israelite had had a proper sense of God's righteousness, they would have never set out to climb the mountain in the first place. It would have been way too tall. I mean, the image I gave earlier of Pike's Peak, it breaks down, and it breaks down by design here because, you know, the image is one of of a hardworking person who climbs the mountain and then is disgruntled at the top. The truth of the matter is, though, nobody who sets out to climb the mountain of God's righteousness ever gets to the top, ever gets to the top. Anyone who would set out grossly underestimates the disparity between their unrighteousness and the pure and holy righteousness of God. It's not 13,000 feet or 14,000 feet. It's like 140,000 feet or a million feet. It's like a million feet. So there's this sense that he's saying, what's the problem? He says, well, the first problem is that those who have pursued God by their own righteousness sorely underestimate the righteousness of God. And he says, and the second problem is the very hope that they have, Jesus Christ, is to them the very turnoff of the gospel. To them, Jesus is like a cheap trick cog train. It's a poor substitute for the labor that they have in the mountain climb. That, that's, what they're, that's what he's saying here. Is, he's saying Jesus is not good news to them. Jesus is cheap news to them. It's a turn off to them. Kind of like, are you telling me that after I've worked and trained hard and climbed all the mountains around that I can see that I finally come to this mountain, and you're telling me that not only can I not get to the top, but that I, need to, I can get on that. I can just buy a little ticket named Jesus Christ and get on that train. It's going to ride me to the top, and then I'm supposed to feel some kind of accomplishment about it? You see, it's just, he has become a stumbling block, because they have too much self-satisfaction in the labor that they're going to contribute. Paul, he has his prayer for them. His heart is that they would be saved in the first verse. But he has this statement, and we're gonna come back to it later. He says, I know, I know that they have zeal. I know they have energy and fight and, and compulsion. But he says the zeal is not based on knowledge. It's incorrectly placed. In other words... You are responsible to be right before the Lord. You cannot get excited about your own path. And when you get to the Lord, him going, "Well, you are really excited about it." He's saying, "No. I know they have zeal, but their zeal is misplaced and they're responsible for it." Okay, let's read 5 through 8. We're on our way to... Uh, I don't want to leave this idea of stumbling stone. I actually think it, this theme carries for about the next uh, 13 verses. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. Now, this is kind of complicated reading here, so I'll, I'll summarize it in a second. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them, verse 6. But the righteousness based on the faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? that is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead but what does it say the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith that we proclaim Paul is challenging them here he's saying listen this is your tr- your problem your problem is you've been trying to ascend. You've been trying to do all the work of your salvation. Like, who can ascend? He's saying it's as though you're climbing a mountain, which is to suggest like, that you need to go bring Jesus down. But I got to tell you, Jesus came down on his own accord. Or you're acting like it's this great Herculean journey into the abyss to bring Christ out of the abyss. But I can tell you, Jesus Christ resurrected on his own power. You don't have to do those things, is what P- Paul's saying. You setting out on that journey is a journey of vanity. It's a journey of self-accreditation. He says, the truth of the matter is that the salvation of Jesus Christ is right in front of you. It's nothing you have to do. It's right there. Now that sounds like good news to most of our ears, I think. To them, this is just getting harder. I think when they hear this, ah, oh, oh. this is the problem, I think they're thinking. They're thinking, he just said it. This is the very reason we don't accept. This is an interesting thing, okay? I'm going to read to you verses 9 through 12, or 13. 9 through 13. These are classic, classic. The church almost never reads the 10th chapter of Romans. We grab a fishing rod and we throw it into the 10th chapter and we yank out verses 9 to 13, okay? So this is classic church scripture, all right? You're going to be very familiar with it. Those of you who have been around this for a while, But, man, we have to do some unlearning today. Paul says, but, he says, you don't have to go do these mountain climbs. But, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Can you think of an easier gospel given in the whole Bible, in the entire Bible, than confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him? Can you, does it get any easier? It's uncomfortably easy. It's uncomfortably easy even for me to say it. Now, the reason I say we have to do some unlearning is because I think, by the way, in in a good-hearted way, in the right-minded sort of way, in a desire to win people over to the Lord and share the gospel with them, We have grabbed this passage and made it the poster of the gospel. When we share it with people, this is this is right, this is the peak of Romans' road of evangelism. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, we want them to know Jesus, and so we've chosen the easiest way to share it. To give to them. The irony of it is that Paul is saying it this way because it's the hardest way for them to hear it. Their stumbling block is Jesus Christ. And in rather than kind of talking Jesus Christ down or going to a different side or saying something like, well, you know, you guys have a point. It is important to do good deeds. I mean, isn't that true? Isn't the Bible going to say that about us? It is important to do good deeds. I mean, wouldn't this be a great time? Paul could say, if they were serious mountain climbers, you know what? If Jesus said to them, sell everything you have and give to the poor and follow me, they'd have done it. These people would have done it. a harder message would have been easier for them. The hardest possible message for these people to hear is this easy message. Are you telling me, like in the middle of the mountain climb, in the deep breaths because the oxygen's thin, and the ice, and you know, are you telling me all I have to say, like up here at 15,000 feet, hanging on this rope with this, Carabiner and Arbuckle and all that other stuff that they call them, swinging and polar bears and yetis everywhere. Are you telling me? Are you telling me in the midst of my dangerous sojourn up, all I have to do is say his name? You have got to be kidding me. You see, we have done the opposite that Paul just did with using this easy passage. Our way, the human way to give the gospel to somebody is to find, is to sell it like a product. I want them to believe it, so I'm going to find the easiest rendition of it. The I will tell you, some people, Paul does not do that. Paul sees the stumbling block and says, you know what, I'm not going to step around the stumbling block that's between you and God. I'm going to step through the stumbling block because that's the door this gospel has to go into if it's ever going to be good news for you. If it's ever going to rescue you from the cliff of the mountain and save you from your strenuous exertion and your self-accreditation and your arrogance and your pride and your labor and all of your haughtiness, if it's ever going to truly do that, it has to come through that door and that door only. Therefore, all you have to do is say it. I mean, let's be honest. Is this how Jesus shares the gospel with people all the time? What you find, the pattern of scripture in the testimony of Christ, is you find that Jesus Christ gives someone the one gospel in the dialect they need to most hear it. And it's usually challenging. When Nicodemus shows up, right, the most learned Shows up in the night to question the rabbi Jesus Christ. Jesus turns to him and says, I tell you, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Is he sidestepping Nicodemus's problems? No. In fact, Jesus enjoys, I think, saying to him, you're supposed to be the learned teacher. and You don't understand this? <laughs> I mean, there's a, come on, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the one thing That has to happen to you in order for you to get the kingdom of God is something you can't do yourself. You must be born again. He deals with the problem. Even Jesus at the well with the woman, in the very next chapter of John, what does he say? He says, Go get your husband. He deals with the problem. What does he do with the rich young ruler? Sell everything you have and give to the poor. He deals with the problem. Jesus is continually dealing with the problem. I even think in the restoration of Peter, after the resurrection, when Peter sees him and dives in the water and he's sitting on the shore eating with him and Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? Of course you know, Rabbi, I love you. Feed my sheep. I think Jesus is dealing with the problem. Can you receive my forgiveness and get back up and minister to my church? We need to deal with the problem. That's what it means to share the life of Christ with someone, is to see the problem and to knock on that door. My, my concern is that we have said, what sounds the easiest in our language? And my, my tendency, I don't want to be obligatory about this, my hunch is to say, whatever that is, do not say it. Do not say it that way. Because it does not confront the lies of our culture. Is it, have you, any of you ever sat down and said, well, maybe, with someone you want to come to Jesus, maybe you need to sell everything you have and give to the poor? You want to come to church? <laughs> I mean, we don't do that. Why do we assume that's the dialect we don't use? I mean, come on, let's be serious. Why is that so anathema to our culture that is immersed in materialism? And yet, this... Just dial now. 1-800-JESUS is the the one that is the default picture? When we know in the Scripture, in the context, we always grab this out of context, but in the context, this is the hardest message right now for the Israelites to possibly hear. Here's the question I would ask you is, I mean, it it should make us wonder, are we conforming the gospel around our lives in a non-transformative way? Are we grabbing the things of the gospel that we like and putting them on like a coat but not letting them penetrate into us and change us, change who we are? This is worth the time. Um, So... I think I'd rather spend my time on this than uh, moving on. How how are you doing this? How are we doing this? I've been trying to think of what's a helpful way to... You're not going to answer this now, right? I mean, maybe you just bring the question to the Lord's table today. You're not going to be able to answer it now. But how... How can we begin to answer the question? Here's some thoughts. One question I found myself asking is, does my Christianity continually reflect one primary virtue? One facet of the faith? What do I mean by that? If I'm a self-righteous Christian, do I continually talk about... uh, good works. Am I excited about good works? You know, this would be the person who's active in a lot of things potentially in the church. I was going to let you know how much they give to the church or tempted to, right? The pat on the back Christian, okay? That makes me think you're conforming the gospel to your life in a non-transformative way. In other words, you're using the gospel and the things of God to feed something about you that God wants to confront. Abolish, and you're feeding it. Another way to think about it is um, the grace of Jesus Christ to forgive sins. Are you leaning on that virtue of the faith because you don't want to leave a sin behind? So, man, you, it's small group, Bible study, wherever you are, you're going to be quick to say... It's all grace. It's all grace. Why? Because you are preserving, in the con- con- you're c- conforming nature of the gospel. You're preserving that space to say, I need to ensure that I have never-ending forgiveness and grace because I do not want to leave this thing for which I need to continually ask forgiveness for. The gospel has come to transform us. It has come to encounter those things and say, that needs to stop. Is your faith, you know, wealth and health? Is God a vending machine to you? Right, God needs to stop. I'm not rejecting that God doesn't answer prayer. I'm, I'm trying to point out, is there a way that you can look and go, I'm a one-track song in the, God, in the kingdom of God. Like, I have this thing, and my... Another way to think about it is, is, does your resistance to Christ center around the same old thing? You know, where, you know... No matter what's being preached, I remember sitting in the seat where God's working on me, and so no matter what was being said from the pulpit or from the children's song, it doesn't matter what, I was getting pushed, the same button was getting pushed in me. That's God's way of saying, I will not stop knocking at this door, because my love for you is best experienced when you open it. God's trying to give us life. He's not trying to eradicate you. He's trying to renew you. Some people, they just can't believe God would forgive them. I mean, this is a strange thing. It can be the easiest things in the world to some of us. You go, "Well, how is that the stumbling block?" But for some people, they would much, they would much rather continually live in a, as a cloudy day Christian. Oh, you know, I'm such a sinner, such a sinner. I've done so many things wrong. I, I. I don't know why God would save me, but He did. I don't know why. It's just, oh, man. Can you just be loved by Jesus for a change? Can you let God take His heel off your head and pick you up and dust you off and kiss you on the forehead and tell you He loves you? You're conforming the gospel around your life in a way that is not transformative. God wants you to be all of what he wants. There's two other questions that, that follow this. And I, I have to kind of zip through them a little bit because I want to get to the last one. The first one, so after the message is given, and, and again, April four, April 18th's message complements this well here after the gospel is given, it's as though Paul assumes that they're going to come back with a question of, ha-ha, maybe maybe we've rejected because we didn't hear. Look at verse 18. But I've asked, have they not heard? He kind of builds up for it and we kind of have to zip there. He says, of course they've heard the message. The reason that the moralist is rejecting me is because Jesus Christ is the stumbling block they refuse to get past. Not that they have not heard. That's that's what eighteen is gonna talk about. And then in nineteen he says, but is it possible that they didn't understand? And this is a curious question. This is a very curious question. Is it possible that they did not understand? Because I'm inclined to say that anyone who would understand God's intent for their life would bow to it. <laughs> I would think if I could truly, if he truly knew what God was trying to do, only a purely evil person would not want that. To which God, uh, Paul kind of lays out some passages here. So 19, but I ask, did Israel not understand? And he says, well, this is what Moses said. I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. So it's this almost a way of, what Paul's suggesting here from using their Bible, he says, well, it seems like it's understandable because a foolish nation is coming to God. These Gentiles around you are coming to God. So if they get it, and you have the Bible, shouldn't you be able to get it? And that's kind of what he's saying. If foolish nations get God You should really get God. And then he says, and then Isaiah is so bold as to say, he kind of doubles down here. He says, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So he says, not only does it seem understandable in such a way that the fullest nations should get it, but it also seems that God is seeable by people who weren't even looking. God seems to be going out of his way to be understandable. So not only is he understandable, but he's trying to make himself understandable. And I'll double down again, he says in 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient contrary people. So not only is, is he understandable, but he's tried to make himself understandable. And to Israel themselves, to the moralists, he's reached out and pleaded on his on the behalf and yet they don't get it. In other words, God is understandable. You might not understand. And those are two very different things. In the beginning of this chapter, he says, I can bear witness that they have a zeal, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. In other words, their understanding is confused. Now, in our setting... Our inclination at this point is to then point back at God and say, well, if we don't understand, well, it's not our fault. But this is because we have a, a clinical view of understanding. Understanding is not an objective scientific instrument that is an intellectual tool. Our understanding is rooted in our soul. It's rooted in all of our, the things we experience and the decisions we made, it's it's. The way you think of the world is ultimately spiritual. You can be a total atheist in the room. Still doesn't mean that the way you think isn't ultimately spiritual. It's anchored deep in how you view the world and everything in it. How we view, how how we process is not, doesn't just live here, it reaches way back into us and drives deep down into how we the assumptions we choose to make, the truths. In other words, what, what Paul is saying is, is God is understandable, and you're to blame for not understanding. You're responsible for how you think. So be careful. You know, the classic, I mean, it's always easier to talk about kids and, uh, and teenagers, they don't have an advocate and, you know, it's so obvious to us as adults, then you can flip it, right? You know how with kids you say, you don't listen to that stuff. That stuff is not good to listen. You shouldn't be watching that. That's pretty harmful lyrics. And they say, oh, I don't really listen to the lyrics. Right? That's, the, that's the lamest old dumb excuse. But, hey, we, I used it, right? The notion is this information can come in and not affect me. It is seeping into the soil and it is forming a worldview. Why is it that we know you don't pour gas on the soil because it it kills the grass, and yet we can say we can pour all these things in us? And where do they go? They, They don't pass. They dwell. God is saying, my revelation to you is understandable, and I've tried to make it understandable, and I reach out. I reach out to make my understandable revelation to you clear. You have to see it. You're responsible. Guard the way you think. The 12th chapter. So, when we finally get out of this chapter, the section of Romans, the 12th chapter says, Be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is what God wants to do. He wants us to make us new, He wants us to revive not by avoiding the sinfulness in our lives so that his gospel feels acceptable, but by going right through the very issues where we're weakest. It's my hope uh, that we would have eyes to see it. I'm gonna pray and then we'll turn to the table. Lord, help us now, help us to uh, be honest before you, Lord. Whether Christian or non-Christian in this room, Lord, help us to be honest before you with our language, with our thoughts. Oh. And then humble, Lord, whether we're Christian or not in this room, honest and then humble to your teaching, maybe to this idea Lord as we, we prepare to come to your table, I, I ask that you revive in us a confidence that you love us enough to deal with the hard things that we come to you, not because you won't ask tough questions about us, not because your spirit won't push your pry, but because your spirit will push and pry, because you love us. Lord, you're doing something for us. Make us more. Make us new. Give us new names, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.